Welcome everyone to today's devotion. We're in Mark chapter 2. Mark is only 16 chapters, so we're already, uh, by the end of the day, an eighth of the way through. Uh, so I, th- I think we'll get through it pretty quick. I mean, obviously three weeks, but uh, I think it'll go by quick. Um, Mark 1 and 2 is action-packed. And so we see Jesus uh, getting disciples, healing people, fighting the devil, all that sort of stuff. And chapter 2 continues that until we get a about halfway, a little over halfway, and what we'll see then is the first of a series uh, that really take on the rest of of the book of of, um, Jesus being challenged. So what we get is the the arrival of Jesus is exciting, his his reputation is spreading, his power is being demonstrated, and then come the critics, right? Isn't that how it it always works? Well, in verses 1 through 12, I suspect it's probably one of your favorite uh, miracles of Jesus because it's it's got some outlandish uh, parts to it. but what it says about Jesus is is significant. And I would say that of all the miracles, this is the one that has perhaps the most clear theological rich, riches to it. Uh, because what Mark and, and the other parallels are saying is quite significant here. This is the man who is paralyzed and lowered down through, through the roof. And so verse 3, um, his friends are, are, are carrying the paralytic just for them. They can't get through the crowd to Jesus. So they, they go up on the roof and uh, make an opening and lower him down. Um, and then Jesus, there in verse 5, it says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, there's an immediate problem that we have there, isn't there? It's not what the man wants. What the man wants is to be able to walk. And it is here where... I think Mark gives us a clear hermeneutic of how to interpret the miracle stories. Again, the miracle stories are not about social justice, uh, humanitarian mercy, uh, or or policy. Right? It's not about helping the poor. It's not about healing the sick. All of those things are important. That's not why they're in the text. Yes, Jesus loved poor people. He was a poor guy. Yes, Jesus did care about the downcast and all that sort of stuff. All of that is true, but that's not the point. The point is for us to see the connection between physical and supernatural maladies, whether it's leprosy or unclean spirit like we saw in chapter 1, or paralysis we see here in chapter 2, to, to, to equate those with our spiritual need of redemption. We are blind. We are deaf. We are demonized. We are weak. We are paralyzed. And apart from the intervention of Christ, we have no hope of redemption, of true healing. And so when Jesus sees the physical need, he responds with the spiritual answer, your sins are forgiven. And you remember, it was forgiveness that John was preaching about in chapter 1. So it's important he, he makes that, that, that connection. But let me also note here that Jesus is right that our greatest need is not more income. It, it, it isn't uh, a robust career. It isn't to get through school. It isn't for this or that. Our greatest need is not physical. Our greatest need is spiritual. Look, don't underestimate that that the more post-Christian, post-truth we become as a society, and so we start turning within ourselves looking for the answers to life, do not be surprised when anxiety rates, um, um, bitterness, malice, uh, uh, doubt, worry, all these things are on the increase because we are looking for physical answers to spiritual needs. And Jesus comes and says, no, 
you, you, you need to see your greatest need is for your sins to be forgiven. So, son, your sins are forgiven. Uh, now, some of the scribes were sitting there. It's really the first time we've, we've really been introduced to them. Right? They've been hinted at, right, with the, the scribes, that Jesus teaches as one with authority, unlike the scribes, Pharisees. But here, they become the primary antagonist to Jesus. And, and they're asking the question that everyone would be asking, you and I would be asking. And that is, who does this man uh, think he is? This is blasphemy. Now, now let, let, let's be clear. To declare you have the power to forgive someone of sins is blasphemy. Now, you should forgive people, but you cannot forgive sins, right? There's a big difference there. Jesus is claiming to forgive them from all of their sins, not just the sins committed against Jesus. I don't know what their prior relationship was, but to forgive them of all of their sins. That is the exclusive authority and right of God himself. So in extending grace, Jesus declares himself to be, what was the first verse of, of the book? Beginning, Jesus uh, Christ, the, the Son of God. It's exactly who Jesus is claiming to be. So they say, look, this is blasphemy. They ask, who, here at the end of verse 7, who can forgive sins but God alone? And notice verse 8, immediately Jesus responds. They're asking this in their hearts. But Jesus uh, says, okay, I'll deal with this because this is sort of important. You come to me because I can heal people. You come to me because I can cast out demons. You come to me because I can put on some really nice uh, tricks and, and seemingly make... Um, 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 make your life better. But here's the real thing. I didn't come for that. I came because of the kingdom of God and the gospel of Christ. So he says, okay, look, you tell me which one is easier to say. Your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. Now, pause there. Don't, don't jump ahead. Which one is easier to say? Let's think of a different example. Which one is easier to say? Let's eat at McDonald's. Let's eat at Zaxby's. They're both pretty easy to say, right? That's the thing. They're both easy to say. Anyone can claim to forgive sins, and anyone can claim to be you know, the divine son of God. Anyone can say these things. But who can prove it? Who can prove it? So in that context, he says... If I tell this man to get up and walk and he does it, and I demonstrate my power and authority over paralysis, can we not all agree I demonstrate my authority to forgive sins as the divine Son of God? Everyone agrees on that. So he says to the man, get up and walk, pick up your bed, go home. And that's exactly what he did. Notice verse 12, he rose and immediately, there's that word again, picked up his bed, went out before them all, so that they were all amazed. And here it is, glorified God. Remember, in chapter 1, they were astonished, asking, who is this that cast out demons? And now is in chapter 2. They're equally astonished and amazed, but they're, they're giving glory to God. Who is the God here? It's Jesus. We never saw anything like this. And the issue is, is that, wait, if, if Jesus can heal that man's sins... Can he not heal my sins? And the answer, of course, is yes. Now, notice we go from there to a calling of another disciple. This is similar to chapter 1. It's not the same, but it is similar to in chapter 1, where we have calling of disciples in the context of 
of, of healings. And so here we get the calling of Matthew. Here he goes by Levi, same individual. Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, he said to him, follow me. He rose and followed him. And out of that, uh, Matthew gets all of his, his bros together, and Jesus goes and shares a meal with them. And people complain, why is he eating with sinners and tax collectors? Well, um, uh, Jesus says, well, because they're they're sick, and, you know, it's sick people who need a doctor, not people who, th- who think they're not sick. But I just want to point out that this is the same people who, in chapter 1, had an unclean spirit in the pews during worship with them. And I think we're supposed to see the connection there. The religious people have the unclean among them. The non-religious people have the unclean among them. But what do they have common between them? Jesus goes where they are. And Jesus heals the sick, forgives the lost. Well, from there... Um, from there, we get um, two challenges to Jesus, and I don't want to spend forever on them. I'm actually hoping to keep this uh, short. The first has to do with fasting, um, and this is going to get on our nerves uh, because um, if you remember from Matthew and Luke, they're always complaining that Jesus is doing things on the Sabbath. So questions on the, about the fasting and, and questions about the Sabbath, they're both here the first two uh, criticisms Jesus gets. When it comes to fasting, Jesus says, look, my disciples aren't fasting now because I'm here. I'm the bridegroom. But when the bridegroom leaves, they will fast, which means you and I should practice the spiritual discipline of fasting. Throwing that out there to, to a nation that struggles with obesity. Oh, and let's not forget that we are pretty morally debauched right now. Maybe we should try the spiritual disciplines. Uh, nevertheless, um, we also see the challenge to Jesus, Lord. So I think we talked about this in Matthew, so again, I don't want to spend forever on it. Verse 24, the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, what are what is this unlawful thing? Well, it's told to us in verse 23. One Sabbath, here we go. When you see the word Sabbath, you know something, something's going to happen. Now, remember, the last time we saw the Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in a synagogue, and there was an unclean spirit there. Now we see Jesus on the Sabbath. What is he doing? He's going through grain fields, and they were plucking heads of grain. And we need to see this was legal for the poor to do. This is essentially what Ruth does in the book of Ruth when um, she and Naomi, both widows, um, are impoverished. And so the idea is the poor, if they don't have a job, can go through the grain fields and just get what is left behind. It's essentially what Jesus and the Sabbath are doing here. They, they don't have full-time jobs. You know, they, there is no Social Security. There is no unemployment. So they're going through the grain fields because they're hungry, not because they're greedy, uh, to, to get a handful of, of, of grain. And the Pharisees come and say, we'd rather you be hungry than to work on the Sabbath. But also notice, they criticize Jesus' disciples for, for not fasting. And now uh, they're connecting it with, with the Sabbath. So it's, uh, they're just never happy. Never happy. One thing will lead, lead to, to another. And then uh, Jesus goes back to the Old Testament. We, we've talked about this. I've preached through every verse of Mark. Um, I, I meant to look up how many sermons it was. It took me a few years to do it. So you, you can go through all of that. But I just want to highlight the very end of chapter 2. Verse 27 says, Jesus states, The Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is a declaration of of divinity, right? To be the Lord of the Sabbath. Because who's the Lord of the Sabbath? The God that created it, right? Thus, God tells us what it means to keep the Sabbath. 
not man. And so Sabbath was there to serve man, to help man. He needs rest. He needs to worship. But that doesn't mean he should starve. There's a right time to fast. This wasn't that right time to fast. So Jesus declares to be a true and better Sabbath. Huge implications there. But uh, we'll leave it there. Lord willing, we'll, we'll look at chapter 3, Monday morning. Hope you guys have a good weekend. See you then.